Bonjour. Hello. Bienvenue. Welcome to a new episode of the Franco-Irish podcast channel. Et voilà. Kindly sponsored by the cultural section of the French Embassy in Ireland. My name is Catherine Gagneux. I am the French Honorary Consul for Connacht and Donegal. I am based in Galway and I will be your host for this episode. During this episode, we're going to talk about James Joyce and his last year in France, in a small village in the centre of France. So saint gérard le puy is a small commune in the département Vallier in Auvergne, in central France. So if you look at the map of France and look at the centre of it, it is pretty much where you will be able to locate this small commune. It is situated northeast of Vichy. A Roman road runs through by the town and an old medieval castle still looks over saint gérard le puy In 1936, it had about 1,300 inhabitants. Despite being a small village, saint gérard le puy has witnessed the passing of pilgrims on their way to Santiago de Compostela and also the passing of famous historical figures such as the Pope on his way to Napoleon Sacrament in 1904. And in 1939, James Joyce. To talk about uh, the year that James Joyce spent in saint gérard le puy I am joined um, by three fantastic guests. So to discuss his last year in saint gérard le puy um, I have I have with me Uh, Darina uh, Gallagher, and Darina is a director of the Gem Joyce Cultural Center in Dublin and in the International Bloomsday Festival. And for the last 10 years, she has been lecturing and creating performances relating to the life and works of Gem Joyce. But she's most importantly passionate about making Gem Joyce accessible to everyone. Thank you, Darina. And with me as well today, we have uh, Marion Byrne. And Marion uh, studied biochemistry at UCD and went on to get a PhD in molecular biology in the Netherlands. She has published articles in internationally high-ranking journals and spoken at international venues from Japan to the USA on several occasions. After a postdoc in the United States, she went to live in the center of France to see what else she was capable of, um, of doing. And after taking several jobs, including running a campsite, a fish farming, teaching scientific and English um, and working in real estate, um, she, also got in, she also became a fervent theater lover and has acted with many professional companies in the regional branch of the National Drama Networks. So, When she discovered the James Joyce Association in saint gérard le puy not far from where she lives and where Joyce had spent the last year of his life, she started researching and documenting the author's stay in that village. She is now the artistic director and acting president of James Joyce Association of saint gérard le puy uh, And with Triestine artist Paola Pessini, she wrote and produced a multilingual docudrama for Italian radio in 2020 about Joyce's final year. And Marion would like to be introduced as an accidental Joyce lover or Joyce, Joycean, more to say. And with us as well this evening, uh, we have a Dr. Um, Adrian Patterson. So Dr. Adrian Patterson is a lecturer in English in National University of Ireland in Galway and is the director of the Yeithor Balile Society. And he works on modernism and Irish writing, especially in the connections between literature, music and the other arts. And before we start our discussion, I would like to do some few mentions um, um, during the recording of, um, of this episode. And I would like to say a special thank you to Olwen Fouere and Porik Branach um, 
for some of the recording that the um, that they, they they gave us for for Vidpodcast, and then we'll we will be listening to our, throughout this episode to some of the recordings that they gave us um, during um, during the the duration of uh, this podcast. So um, so welcome to you all. And we're going to have a little bit of a conversation between um, between ourselves about James last year in saint jean le puy in the centre of France. So before we get started, I mean, I suppose it would be worth mentioning his time in France and more to speak in Paris. So, so his first trip um, was, I believe, in 19, 1902, and he wanted to move to the City of Light, and at that time to join, as we call the um, uh, les poètes maudits, the accurate poets like Verlaine and Baudelaire and some of the very, um, very prominent uh, writers and thinkers, not just the French one, but also some, some of the other um, international ones where we're all meeting in Paris and in Montparnasse or in the Latin quarters. So what kind of lifestyle did you have in Paris and what kind of people did you meet and interact with, uh, Adrian? Uh, I think it was a peripatetic lifestyle, wasn't it? He, he was always changing flats and moving around. Um, I think it's retrospective. I mean, he'd been to Paris first in 1902. He had the idea he'd go and study medicine there and um, uh, make a life for himself and comes back to Dublin with his tail between his legs, um, rather. he's But he... he as you said, originally he goes to Paris partly to seek out kind of poetry and literature and art and spends a lot of time in libraries there copying out kind of um, sayings from Aristotle and other things. I have a PhD student actually who thinks that, that it can all be traced back to this one Parisian notebook that he did in about 1902. So, yeah, so he came first in 1902 and he wanted to move to the City of Life. And, and, then, and then his idea was trying to attempt uh, Les Poètes Maudits, the accursed poets like the Verlaine and Baudelaire. And, and then he gets some help as well from uh, W.B. Yeats, I believe, right? Yeah, Yeats is, uh, meets him in London and, and send, puts him on the train to Paris and then sends him reviews um, uh, or, or commissions for reviews of things. And Joyce being Joyce reviews um, the books very badly, particularly a kind of notable translation <laughs> by Lady Gregory um, of of Gulen of Mathevna um, and other things. So he so he kind of bites the hand that feeds him in a certain way. Um, but that was characteristic of Joyce. He was he he always wanted help and looked for help, but also was was certainly no one's um, um, poodle. So he was always kind of writing things as he saw them. Um, so despite all the help he got, he had the idea that he'd been kind of drummed out of Dublin. I think that wasn't quite true, but he, he always felt that in some way his exile was was by choice, but but was because Dublin and Ireland ne never quite appreciated him. And that's it's there's a half truth in that, but not a whole truth, I think. And then he had a taste of the Parisian life, um, um, a little bit some of the eccentric way, I suppose, of living in in, in those days and I suppose, Darina, you were looking at some yes, of the extracts. Yes, just um, in, in Ulysses, uh, on, on his return, that uh, the Stephen Dedalus character, uh, right at the beginning of, of Ulysses, he shares the Martello Tower with Buck Mulligan. And uh, he, he says, no, it's fine, I'll drink me tea black. And uh, Buck Mulligan uh, isn't having any of this Parisian notions, as we'd call them in <laughs> Ireland. And he says, oh, damn you and your Paris fads. Um, I want Sandy Cove milk. Um, so he's he's <laughs> yeah, he he's determined to not let him get away with um 
this uh, Parisian stylings that he's acquired uh, <laughs> as his time as a student there. Very good, very good. So, like, he's in Paris in the 1920s and, and he meets different kind of, like, French and international writers and then some of them that will be, like, Louis Aragon, Hemingway, Valérie Larbeau, um, Ezra Pound, Samuel Beckett, and 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 Juna Barnes, and then we'll, we'll find out later on that he he still keeps um, um, in touch with Samuel Beckett because Samuel Beckett will come and join him in Saint Gérard de Puy at some point. But I mean, um, so what what kind of exchanges do we know was he having with his um, with his writers or interactions? I suppose. Well, Joyce, I mean, he had, I think he had his own circle in some ways. I mean, he was he went to Paris partly because of Ezra Pound encouraging him to do that. Mm. Um, and Ezra Pound had the idea that London was dead and Paris was the place to be. And then finally, Pound moves to Italy, goes the opposite way from Joyce. But but he's so he's, he meets all these people, um, becomes I mean pretty close friends with people like Ezra Pound and Samuel Beckett particularly. Um, certainly, and meets Hemingway and these other writers. Um, but is I think I mean to an extent he, he I mean you know towards the end he goes to a Hemingway reading. And Hemingway's reading and Stephen Spender is reading and he walks out at some point because he's bored. So he's definitely um, his own figure and in some ways is more comfortable in um, either speaking to ordinary people or people in restaurants and cafes, it seems to me. And also, you know, potentially um, French writers and translators who are helping him in various ways. Um, and that, that seems yeah. to me kind of significant. And he seemed to, um, I mean, he had quite an expensive lifestyle as well. It got more and more expensive as he as he went along in Paris that he would uh, dine out in um, at, at Fouquet, which is the um, one of the most expensive restaurants in Paris. And um, he'd have his circle and he'd pay for everybody and the waiters knew him. And then, you know, the word go, would go around that Joyce had arrived and um, there would be there, there were, you know, artist painters and and people like that as well. But uh, he um, he didn't really he wasn't that sociable either, was he? He was, um, um, I think, constantly well, thinking of um, his work, perhaps, and yeah. But also at this time, if we think we're we're coming very close to the hundredth hundredth anniversary of the publication of Ulysses, so this is nineteen twenty two, and the extraordinary commotion and international mm. uh, furore about um, this book. Um, I was at a really interesting lecture as part of Bloomsday about Russian. Uh, Russians and the secret novel that they had that they okay. uh, um, and the uh, Russian literary uh, uh, community in Moscow. So here was this he he became this extraordinary international figure. So maybe in some ways, part of his difficult persona <laughs> at this time was was in reaction to some of this extraordinary international fame. exposure yeah. that he, he had got. Fame, and, yeah, fame. And, and of course, there is that, that encounter with Sylvia Beach from Shakespeare Company and the publishing of um, Ulysses. Yeah. That's, that, I suppose, that's the, the, the big one. It is. That's the big thing. And then yeah. Emigway helping it out to bring it, to smuggle it to the US via I Canada. Know. So um, This dirty old book. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And not to forget Adrian, um, Adrian Monnier as well, who, who played a very important role. In fact, she advised Sylvia Beach um, all along and... Um, and she, she really, both of them played a really important role in, in getting uh, 
uh, Ulysses published. And, uh, um, and, and Valérie Larbeau, in fact, in 1921, he gave a, um, a lecture on, on um, Ulysses praising um, the book in French to, 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 um, to make uh, French people aware of this uh, person that he had just discovered, um, um, James Joyce, again, at, um, it was one of their bookshops. Both of them had bookshops and they were almost opposite each other. And we are now going to listen to an original audio of a reading of Ulysse Eol, episode 7, recorded by James Joyce in 1924. Before that arrogant admonition, he would never have led the chosen people out of their house of bondage, nor followed the pillar of the clouds by day. He would never have spoken with the eternal on Sinai's mountain top, nor ever have come down with the light of inspiration shining in his countenance and bearing in his arms the tables of the law. Raven in the language of the outlaw. And how was James Joyce French? I suppose I believe I know we all know he was fluent, but I mean, I mean, how how was his practice or his use of French on on a, on a daily basis or even in a writing capacity? Well, he'd been he'd been learning French since he was very young because when he went to Tlongos, apparently he he. Uh, he was only he was at Tlongos between six, the age of six and nine, and uh, uh, he was learning French then. And I have a little anecdote, in fact, that um, somebody told me who who works at um, Tlongos uh, when when Joyce arrived there and they asked him um, what his name was. Uh, no, when they asked him um, uh, how old he was. He said, j'ai six heures, um, <laughs> and that kept with him. They used that as a nickname, apparently. Um, so he said, instead of saying, I'm six, he said, I'm six o'clock. And um, um, they uh, they called him that, j'ai six heures, um, <laughs> after that. <laughs> That's a lovely story. Um, I, I, think, but, I think in general, his language skills are remarkable. I mean, he's a language yeah. teacher for a start. He teaches English to Italians and also not just Italians, Triestine Italians with a particular kind of accents. He's, he conducts yeah. correspondence in three or four languages, which is to say German, French, Italian and English and probably more. Um, and, and some of that kind of interesting language ends up in a book like, not just Ulysses, but a particular book like Finnegan's Wake, which is a kind of creation of huge numbers of languages, including mm. Danish and um, Key Swahili and all sorts of things that end up in a kind of big melange. I think he's really, um, he, he's not just an interest in speaking language, but particularly he's interested in, in speaking language and how it's different when it's spoken and written, how people get on in that way. Um, but also in the, what makes language work, you know, what, what joins it together, I think is really interesting for him. And they spoke Italian at home as well, um, the, the Triestine dialect and... Uh, um with with each other and um wh maybe when he came to france first that it, it was a little bit rusty but certainly his his letters at the end the ones in french i mean he he yeah he had perfect control of the of, of the french language and new you know expressions and things like that that um 
Yeah, yes, a real multilingual environment, I suppose. Yeah. So, yeah, and he also took part of the the first translation, didn't he, as well? Um, the morale. Yeah, he's involved in his own translations. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. He he, get, he kind of enlists people to help him, but he very much oversees the translations into French yeah. of Ulysses, yeah. and later on the translation into Italian yes. of parts of fin- Finnegan's Wake, um, or what's then called Work in Progress. I mean, he's he's astonishing range and reach of things. And those, are, I think you were talking about the kind of expatriate communities, those are the kind of people that help him, actually. People who are, if you like, in some ways, deracinated. Paul Leon is, is originally from Russia, I think, and comes to, to Paris. I mean, Paris is kind of the center of emigres, and Joyce fits in in this community where everyone comes from somewhere else, potentially, and has a kind of interest in the, the, the I suppose you call it now, a melting pot of international cultures. And, and I think Paris still has, even after the First World War, has that status um up until the yes. second world war perhaps as a as a place of kind of where all artists go but also where all people of nationalities might escape to in various ways i, mean, I think paul leon was escaping from the bolshevik revolution so yes and how is he perceived then in in that area in paris by among those different writers i mean uh, what are the first impressions of some of those writers that he meets it's hmm, interesting question well um I know most about, um, it, it, he corresponds with, with Ezra Pound way before he meets him. So sometimes there's a kind of interesting uh, relationship, which you can see better in the letters. Um, Samuel Beckett, of course, is Irish, so they, they go drinking together and um, hang out in bars in a way that annoys Nora, I think. Um, some of the French writers, I think he's, he's, he's known as being very formal and polite. Isn't that right, Marion? That he's, he's always yeah. kind of wonderfully formal. So I think he, has, he can fit into to, to the French mm-hmm. writers' characters. And then yeah. people like, I don't know, um, Eugene Jolat and Maria Jolat are anyway sort of partly American and all sorts of things. So he's able to fit in, navigate himself within within a group of really different kind of people, I think. But as far as I know, it was always um, Monsieur Joyce and um, the only person who who used his first name and, and then said Jim was, of course, Nora. But otherwise, even Maria Jolas, and they were very close, but he would he he would call her Madame Jolas and uh, and she Monsieur Joyce and and Beckett as well. Um, even Beckett, it, it, everything was Monsieur Joyce. There was a he sort of kept this distance as well, um, somehow or other. Kind of a respect as well. So, yeah. so we come to that point. You meant you mentioned the um, uh, Eugene and Maria Jolas. So, so they obviously meet in Paris. So, can you tell us more about about like that that encounter and that first? Uh, I mean, how they how they meet up and how that all goes about? Because I mean, the um, Maria Jolas plays an important role then in what's going to happen next after in in Saint Germain sure. Puy. Mm-hmm. Well, Eugene Jolas is. Um, I mean, he's. He's a kind of expatriate, partly American, partly French, in Paris. And he, I think I'm right, he takes over Ford Maddox Ford. He's another kind of um, multilingual um, specialist. who's he, writing a kind of column in um, a Parisian paper about uh, life in Paris. So Eugene Jolet takes over that and then gets very interesting as, as a kind of, um, not quite a publisher, but a kind of a go-between and edits a magazine called Transition, which is kind of one of the great... Um, modernist magazines that really does new work um mm. and even you know even kind of publishes a manifesto in 1929 this is after he's already started publishing what what is called work in progress this thing this magisterial book that Joyce won't tell anyone the name of mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. so Jola is publishing that and saying alongside that and probably inspired by Joyce perhaps publishing things in manifesto manifesto saying things like 
which is the literary creator has the right to disintegrate words imposed upon him by textbooks and dictionaries. Okay. Time is a tyranny to be abolished and things like that. Um, the plain reader be damned. So this is kind of <laughs> avant-garde, modernist um, sensibility that you imagine is at least partly influenced by Joyce and the idea of newness and doing things new. Right. Um, but of course, as I, I'm sure I'll say again, at the same time, Joyce himself is always looking back and being retrospective and looking back to the beginning of things. Yes. But it was yes. very audacious of, of um, Eugène Jolas, Jolas to, um, he, he published uh, in 16 installments, yeah, um, Finnegan's Wake. I mean, to publish such a book, it, it, um, it was quite uh, extraordinary, I think. Um, it was daring even to the point. Very daring. And, and he also published um, Kafka and, and Beckett and uh, um, and the covers of the, the journal as well were... Um, were very beautiful. They were um, by people like Man Ray and Marcel Duchamp and, and Hans mm -hmm. Arp had uh, designed them. Um, so it was very avant-garde. And uh, in fact, uh, in, and Jolas himself was, was a poet as well, but um, um, little known, in fact. He, um, mm. yeah. Uh, and... And his so Maria uh, Maria Jolas, um, both of the, the, the she was a translator, um, she was a singer and and a translator, um, and a, a very well known translator at that time. And for example, um, Alfred Dublin, um, Berlin Alexander Platz, uh, she she translated that. Um, and I don't know how she did so many things. And she she started to she founded this uh, school then, um, in fact, for her own children, in because um, when they became school going age, uh, because the French uh, um, national education system didn't please her and wasn't very child friendly. And, hasn't actually changed an awful lot but uh, um, <laughs> and so she with um, a friend of hers they they founded this school and they the, the school itself was also very avant-garde um, and and it was a multinational community there were Russians uh, Americans of course and uh, Spanish people and uh, people from all over the place there were yeah, I think about 150 children attended that school before um, she moved to... to uh, so so that school at that time is in Neuilly and it's outside Paris. Yes. Uh, just to, to kind of uh, localise yeah. a little bit more where it can, is. Can I ask a and question? Does it, does it have um, a kind of Catholic um, quality to it? Because I, I think I remember them talking about education and Joyce kind of claiming mm -hmm. his own catholic background was was kind of black magic and things so it was yes wasn't that was it. they that had right? those discussions in in saint jean le pre yes about education and uh, um but in fact her method was probably closer to montessori um mm -hmm. than anything else um she herself yes um I, I think was Catholic, but uh, it didn't really show through in the school curriculum or that. It was um, they had uh, extraordinary teachers, I think, as well. It was quite expensive to attend the school, and uh, um, they had, you know, people who were writers themselves, and uh, they they um, would be the yeah literature um, teachers and. Uh, 
Um, one of them was an Irish woman, um, Marcel um, Graham was her name. She was married to George Pellerson, who was also one of the teachers. And he was a well-known writer and later a journalist with um, dubious doings during the war. Um, but uh, um, yeah, and his wife, uh, yeah, she said was one of the best teachers. They, she had to, she really went out of her way to, to find very special teachers for the school. So yeah, it's quite interesting to see how um, the Jolas and the Joyces um, get together more more often and they, they contribute a lot um, professionally, but also they get to know each other a little bit better. And um, they, they even to the point where uh, that, that friendship um, gets to the point where Maria Jolas is helping um, James Joyce and Nora with their daughter, Lucia. So we can see really a, a lovely um, friendship growing between yeah. those two families. I think also, I mean, Adrian can say more about it perhaps, but coming, I mean, Finnegan's Wake was published in in May but before that there was an enormous marathon to get everything uh, mm -hmm. um uh, you know to get Joyce to stop correcting for a start and and uh, to get everything um um yeah the, the proofreadings and every everything so they had uh, they all worked as a team all these people um close to Joyce as well and the the Jolas has um, played an important role there um in in getting the book ready for publishing and uh um yes and, and, and helping even helping the, the the family in the day to day um lives as well so and adrian can you talk to us a little bit more um about tutto sciolto well the poem yeah well that's a poem um like a lot of joyce's work he's he's interested you know in kind of sound patterns and memories and things and so that seems to me a poem in a way, it seems very unlike Finnegan's Wake. It's, I think it's published in May 1917 um, in the kind of the preeminent, uh, well, still the preeminent poetry journal, Poetry Magazine Chicago, um, edited by Harriet Monroe, a, a publication arranged by Ezra Pound and others. And this is a poem that you would think could not be by the same author as Finnegan's Wake, but I think that there are some things that they have in common, um, an interest in sound patterns and an interest in memory and also how memory works. Um, so as Joyce's friends uh, start being doubtful about a kind of crazy, um, impenetrable book like Finnegan's Wake, um, at the same time, it has affinities, I think, with a poem like this. I mean, Tutto Escolto is, is really a musical term, isn't it? It means kind of um, with freedom, um, you know, um, allowing a kind of freedom of spirit in, in performance. So it has something that asked to be kind of performed about a poem like this, something kind of musical. Yes. Um, yes. And so that you can, if you perform it or hear it, you can hear the kind of patterns of words and things that come back. And actually, I mean, you know, it's, it's, but it's actually, although it seems kind of simple, it's a really deeply intertextual poem. It borrows from Yeats. It sort of sounds almost like Yeats's poems at some, some yes. places. It sounds like um, Nash wrote a wonderful poem um, that's, um, you know, that's a litany in time of plague. That involves the lines, adieu, farewell, earth's bliss, the world uncertain is, fonder life's lustful joys, death proves them all but toys, none from his darts can fly, I am sick, I must die, Lord have mercy on us, um, which is, you know, sort of poem in time of play, we can all appreciate that right now, but those lines um, about Very you know, dust falling from the air that, that, that Stephen plays with in the portrait of the artist kind of reappear, reappear 
brightness falling from the air at this moment is, is something that really matters to... Um, yes. And now we're going to listen to Olwen Ferré reading that poem, Tutto e Sciolto. Birdless heaven, sea dusk, one lone star piercing the west, as thou, fond heart, loves time, so faint, so far, rememberest. The clear young eyes, soft look. The candid brow. The fragrant hair. Falling as though the silence falleth now. Dusk of the air. Why then? Remembering those shy, sweet lures, repine when the dear love she yielded with a sigh was all but thine. is so beautiful um but interesting to think about that uh time leading up to the um from 1917 and all the way the publication of Ulysses but uh particularly from uh, the publication of Ulysses to the publication of Finnegan's Wake and talking about this community that's supporting this artistic extraordinary energetic artistic community but throughout all this time Joyce's own health is not good yes and particularly his, his eyesight and i i i guess like adrian has talked about these letters are really um insightful uh about um how Joyce is is coping through this this time either to Ezra Pound or um particularly to um Harriet Shaw Weaver and and describing um the pain he's in um that he really can't see a lot of this time um so he's through the 20s and 30s. he's got the digestive yeah, problems so yeah, yeah. so all of those things are really kind of interfering with so some of the needs, things that he wants to do he yes. needs so much help and support yes. to just physically they're they're so excited about his writing they're publishing it they're yes. you know they want the world to 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 see more of Joyce or hear more from him but it's hard for him he's he he's you know it's not easy he needs he needs a lot of help yes. through this and time. and that's where the jealous are, are, are really um uh are really like a key um a key part of that story i suppose and and where they they're helping um they're helping uh, Joyce and and his family um during that time so so we we get to um that time it's 1939 and uh, the war is declared in France in September 
And um, so a lot of things, uh, the life as as people know it is 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 changing, and um, and at that point, then um, uh, the Jollas are inviting, um, are inviting the, I mean the Jollas are inviting the Joyces to to move down to Saint Geran, um, Saint Geran le Puy to spend um, Christmas. Um, so a lot of things are are in motion at that point. And uh, even Maria Jolas is moving the school from Neuilly down to saint geran le puy And there's a lot of uncertainties uh, around uh, uh, the decision whether to stay or to, 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 to leave Paris. And eventually they decide to move out of Paris and get closer to Vichy and move to saint geran le puy so that they can give themselves a less traumatic environment um, to live in. And also not just for them, but also for their, for their families. So how did, how did all that move happen? It seems to be done in a rush, almost in a disorganized way. Well, Maria Jolas, uh, she um, moved as soon as um, she and her husband heard that uh, um, the war had actually broken out. The, it was on the 1st of, uh, 1st of September that they heard that, that Germany had invaded Poland. Um, then what was decided was he, he went back to the States and uh, because he was a journalist and then mm -hmm. later he would come back in fact uh, for the liberation um and uh, of france but he uh, um and she decided to stay because also because everybody was saying oh it was only going to last for right you know a couple of months and it'd all be cleared up and nobody believed there was going to be a war um and uh, so in um, September, she came to Saint Jean le Puy. How did it? Yeah, why was it Saint Jean le Puy? In fact, um, one of her, one or two of her pupils in um, Neuilly, um, mm -hmm. their their mother had uh, suggested that if war should break out, then um, she had a her country home, her chateau, um, just outside Saint Jean le Puy, and that. Uh, um, she could move the school there if uh, need be. So, um, and she didn't um, immediately um, jump to that idea because she just didn't think it would be necessary. And then everything it just happened very suddenly. And then she did. So she came to Saint-Germain. Yes. And parents were waiting for her actually when she arrived. And then she had to go back and forth to, to uh, Paris a few times to... Um, move all the um, everything, the whole school. Yeah, uh, move things. And, and even the the anecdote is that she um, Maria Charles moved more than just the school to to Saint Geran to Saint Geran le Puy. She she was also approached by um, Piqué Guggenheim to um, to help her hide some paintings um, into Saint Geran yeah. as well to that <laughs> castle. So we have like some very prominent artists. Like we have paintings from Vasily Kandinsky, Dali. And Klee, yeah. um, Picabia, and I suppose the Fernandesi as well, Magritte. I mean, well. some yeah. some very um, yeah. It was a very famous collection. Yeah, that was later. That was in June. Yeah, um, that uh, when um, Hitler invaded Paris. So just before yeah. that, Peggy Guggenheim was still in Paris, looking frantically for um, a solution to. Um, hide her collection she had a very modern collection and uh um you know they say she bought a painting a day um but uh, uh after the war broke out 
um she helped yes. an awful lot of artists that's for sure and she yes, yes, um yes. the louvre wouldn't um take her um her her collection they they didn't believe in it and uh so yeah she it ended up coming to to saint Jean and uh, yes was stored but i suppose in a, in a bar yes, but i suppose le louvre was also moving uh, le louvre was also moving a lot of her uh, very um, uh, very valuable objects and yes. and um, and arts and paintings as well outside le louvre to other parts of france as well so yeah, the, they, um, they moved the, to the countryside as well yeah and yeah, uh, yeah, in yeah. the end it it moved her collection moved to grenoble to the um mm -hmm. Art Museum in Grenoble because the director at that time, yeah, he 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 understood the value. He's one of the only people to understand the the um, the value of her collection. Then he actually gave her a big space that she could um, <clears throat> lay out her things and uh, her paintings and catalog them, which is uh, all she wanted. She wanted to have an exhibition in the middle of the war, yes. but uh, he held her back <laughs> oh, from yeah. that because it was far too dangerous. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, that but wasn't the, the re really precious cargo um, was uh, Stephen Joyce, um, Joyce's only grandson, only grandchild um, had, of course, been born. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, attending uh, Maria Jolas's school in Paris. How long yeah. was he there before exactly. they moved? He was still very young, wasn't he? Yeah, um, he was only seven. So, yes. <clears throat> and in fact, oh, uh, gosh. All kinds of things happened um, in the autumn, the summer and the autumn of 1939. So, uh, Stephen was, is Giorgio. Uh, Grandson. Giorgio's son. So, son, yes. Um, and uh, that he he was, that Nora and, and James were, were almost surrogate grandparents a lot of the time and, of course, adored this little boy. Um, and he moved uh, down to Saint-Jean-le-Puy. He moved to the school, yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. His um, parents broke up. In fact, first of all, his uh, his mother had a um, a nervous breakdown. She'd had one the year before, and then um, had another one um, in in the end of the summer. I think it was in 1939, and uh, and so um, and also the the marriage between um, Giorgio and and Helen. His wife, uh, yeah. Fleischmann was her name. Um, it, it broke down. So um, uh, then Nora and James took took um, care of uh, Stephen for a while. And then it was Joyce's idea to um, ask Maria Jolas if, if um, to um, have um, Stephen again. And he, he arrived in October, probably the end of October. And uh, yes, he uh, and he was the reason why yeah Joyce arrived in the first place, of course, because uh, yes. uh, Maria Jolas knew that um, um, Joyce was very attached to family reunions, especially at Christmas and for birthdays, and and so he um, she she suggested that uh, he come down to uh, Saint Jean de Puy for Christmas. To, to see their grandson, yes. basically. And, and as you, yes, yes. And as you mentioned, it's very heartbreaking because at that time, then, I mean, Lucia is not joining them. I mean, she's uh, um, she's still in Pornichet, I believe, in at that Pornichet, point. Pornichet, yes, yes. Yes, yes. Yes. And, uh, and uh, <clears throat> so um, uh, he came down with Nora and Giorgio 
for Christmas. Yes. And uh, um, then after the Christmas holidays, um, Nora really wanted to stay because um, it uh, it pleased her there, and it um, it meant he was yes. uh, because he'd been going out a lot and drinking a lot apparently as well with Beckett before um, leaving Paris so uh, yes. it was a bit quieter down there although he did find ways of drinking behind her back but um, uh, the, the local annual as they called it sort of uh, moonshine but yes and uh, I believe he managed to include um, alcohol in his treatment and found a way to treat his digestive problems with um, the odd glasses of pasties as um, well. But it's kind of uh, sad to think that this was really very much their last jovial Christmas, despite the threat of of war um, coming. It it seems to have been somewhat of a celebration. And as you say, Marion, the, you know, Joyce's love of an occasion and a party and a get together, particularly with family. And And it's a very, it's a very festive Christmas. And I think Joyce, from from what I gather. that it was one of, you know, this was the last, the the transition move then to Zurich that we will get to. Yes. And he knows himself, I think that he knows himself that it is his last Christmas. And I, and I believe there's even a a moment where it turns down to Maria when they're having, I think, a bit of a dance or a sing, and and um, and then just saying, "Say, well, this is my last Christmas." And, um, and yeah, very, uh, he said to her, but, you I, know, but he was is, a very festive yeah. man, yes, yeah. But he uh, because he had arrived, he just arrived that day from Paris on the twenty fourth of um, of December, and they had Christmas, um, they had a supper together then, and um, he, uh, but he wasn't feeling well at all. Um, at the beginning of the evening and um, that, that's been written in several places he had to lie down and then he um, but then he came back to the table and, and as the evening went on he he uh, he amused the children an awful lot he always mm-hmm. amused children yeah he was very attached to them and he he would apparently dance um, in a very funny way, throwing out his legs and twisting and turning <laughs> them. And, uh, um, and they, it was very amusing to see him. And he um, he sang. And and Maria Jolas was a, a very fine singer. And um, and she had a, an enormous repertoire um, from Negro spirituals, which she'd heard in her uh, um home went from the servants when she was younger mm-hmm. um, because they lived in Kentucky she was also um, her I think grandparents were Scottish so she had uh, that aspect as well she'd studied um, music uh, song in, in Berlin and um, so she had a, a whole German repertoire yes. as well. And uh, she was really a match for, for Joyce as far as singing oh, goes. Oh dear, Marion, because uh, I was going to sing some of them. So the songs yes. that they sang, but the pressure's oh, well. on now. <laughs> After that introduction, <laughs> I did not so what, study what are you, in So what are you going to sing for us, well, Linda It Rayner? was interesting, that Scottish background, which yes. I think she was very proud of, uh, mm-hmm. actually. And um, Joyce... Uh, loved the poet Robbie yes. Burns mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um used um so much of 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 Burns's work yes. um and, and references him through, throughout Ulysses but particularly um Finnegan's Wake it's right. it's it's got so many um uh references mm-hmm. to to Robbie Burns music so oh no I'm I'm mortified now trying to sing well, <laughs> I'll give, I'll give it a little all. blast because it's <laughs> <laughs> um uh 
ye banks of of dune um and of course, rivers in uh, Finnegan's Wake. He has to mention the Dune <laughs> River. He couldn't, yes. <laughs> he couldn't get away with it. A lot of it. connections. So indeed. it is lovely to think of the two of them, especially mm. after your description, Marion, that he wasn't well. He was tired after traveling, and yet music, um, which Adrian mm. has has studied as well, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I have too, and, and so excited that that was a way of of kind of nations coming together and, yes, and people yes. coming together and I can share it. Anyway, we'll give it a blast. Okay. Ye banks and braes abani dun How can ye bloom so fresh and fair? How can ye chant ye little birds and I so weary full of care? I will break my heart ye warbling birds that wanton through the flowery thorn. Oh, ye mind me a departed choice, departed never to return. Oft have I roved by Bonnie Dune to see the rose and woodbine twine, and ilk a bird sang of. It's love, and fondly so did I of mine. With lightsome heart, I pulled my rose full sweet upon its thorny tree, and my false lover stole my rose. But as she left the thorn with me. Wow, thank you so much. Happy Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) Oh, that's gorgeous. So thank you you for uh, bringing us a little bit closer to that festive Christmas evening and dinner in in Saint-Géran. I, th- I think that sense of it being a last Christmas is interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, that reminds me of my departed joys, departed never to return. Is um, I mean, there's a kind of deliberate kind of assumption of of nostalgia and and gloom. I mean, I remember him saying to Beckett um, something like, "We're going downhill fast." With and Beckett yeah. says, "With a kind of satisfaction." There's a kind of almost like you mm-hmm. take pleasure in the misery. It's not a kind of stoic situation, but it's a kind of almost strange joy in being miserable. That I think that that song. He is associated with is, is is something that he feels very strongly and and perhaps we don't know how if he knew how ill he was but perhaps there's a sense in which you know that's 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 fitting yeah it's it's always funny with those lyrics it's it's like um i just pointed out that those lines departing never to return and the same a little mm-hmm. bit i always think of shula rune one of the few irish language songs that that joyce uses um, and now my love will go to France, you know, uh, and he, if he comes back, there's ne'er a chance or whatever the mm-hmm. lines are. But it's 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 interesting, his choice often of yes, songs yes. that he uses. A lot of insight in there, yes. So Joyce, I mean, they have a festive Christmas and then um, and they're all starting to settle, I suppose, in, um, in some way in Saint-Géran and... Um, 
And well, I suppose uh, whether himself or Nora, they seem to to enjoy at least the, the first few times and the first few weeks or months of of Saint Geron and, and a lot of green landscapes are reminding him of of Ireland and maybe for for Nora, maybe even of Galway. Um, so, what are pretty much the first impressions of? Uh, Joyce and, and Nora um, of Saint Geron, and also interestingly, what what are the impressions of the people from Saint Geron when they see this um, this new people coming to that small village? I mean, how did it all go? I think um, well, what the people the, there are some um, witnesses that have spoken, people who who actually met him, and. Um, um, I could say more about that. I, I wouldn't really dare say what, what um, Joyce thought of Saint-Geran. Um, um, I mean, he was so used to being in cities that um, obviously this was such a big change for him, uh, Saint-Geran. Um, but uh, the, the locals, um, they regarded him more as being aloof but I mean, it had different reasons. He was uh, he was very sad, I'm sure, because of he, he constantly had uh, Lucia on his mind, and um, yes, you yes. can see that in the letters as well. Um, he had uh, a huge financial um, preoccupations as well that he uh, um, had to see about getting money because that was um, very difficult when. Uh, um, the war started to become more serious and uh, he um, had very li little to live off. And he, um, but he, yeah, he, he would walk around the village. Um, well, he, he started his day, um, in, he, he was living in the hotel, Hotel de la Paix for the first few mm -hmm. months. Um, and he would go to the barber because the barber was actually interviewed by the mayor um, of the village and a number of other people, um, fortunately, before um, they passed away. And um, so, so the barber would, uh, um, he would come there between 10 and, and 10, 15 every, every morning. And yes, um, a routine, yes. He, uh, yes, so he had this routine and he would bring his own, um, um, his own razor, his own brush for that. And uh, uh, he wouldn't talk very much, uh, especially he wouldn't say anything at all if there were other people. And then um, the barber said that sometimes he would talk to him if, uh, if there were, yeah, if there was nobody else there. And, uh, but he, um, he, he he talked more about everyday things. He wanted to know yes. what the word for this and that was. There was a particular type of barn door, and um, he wanted to know if there was a special uh, French word for that, for example. And um, um, he just spoke about everyday things and and very little. The barber knew that he'd written this big book um, called Ulysses, but he didn't know anything else about it as. Yes. Everybody in the village, of course, and, and Joyce knew that, that nobody, he wrote that in his letters as well. Nobody knew anything about him or his works here. Um, and, so he, uh, he was giving some kind of impression of this, um, 
a very approachable, approachable, elegant man who would have always his hat and his cape and um, his and hat. his and his cane and his cane that was given by Samuel Beckett, I believe. Yes, of some Irish native root, I believe. Uh, Blackthorn, um, uh, yeah, Blackthorn walking stick. Yes, and um, and he would carry stones in his pocket to throw at the dogs <laughs> because uh, he just like thunder. He did not like dogs and. Um, I believe okay. he he'd been bitten by one when he was much younger, and uh, he um, so he protected himself. We're now talking uh, about uh, James Joyce's stay in Saint Jean le Puy, and Lucia's daughter is very much in his mind. So we're now going to listen to Parik Branagh, and he's going to be reading the poem "A Flower for My Daughter." A flower given to my daughter. Frail the white rose, and frail are her hands that gave, whose soul is sere and paler than time's wan wave. Rose frail and fair, yet frailest, a wonder wild. In gentle eyes thou veilest, my blue vein child. So basically, Joyce had a bit of a daily routine going to to his barber, as you were saying, Marion, and then and um, and then like a lot of the people in the village would would have a look at him, and they they probably didn't fully realize who he was. I mean, some they probably they knew that he was an important writer, but they probably didn't know how important he was and um, and how well he was known. I suppose um, all they could see was this pauvre Irlandais, um, very elegant man wearing his hat and, and a cape and walking with a cane, and um, and then having his daily routine, going to to the barber and having the little chit chat with the local. people people and um and did he have any other kind of favorite places he liked to walk in yeah he in would uh, as well yeah the barber explained that he would um he would go down the road then further and outside the village there's a a wash house it's a it's a 12 it's it's quite unique in france in fact it's a 12-sided wash house okay. and um um the washerwoman would be there of course and um they had their local dialect as well, um, Bourbonnais. And okay. um, and I'm, yeah, I mean, that must have, he, he would have appreciated that, of course, hearing that and um, be very interested in it. And then the splashing of the water and the, <laughs> the wash house has a, has a hole in the roof in the middle so that when it rains, it falls in through the middle and it's, it's really oh, very wow. beautiful. And um, it's been completely restored and it's, um, yeah, we, we use it sometimes for readings and that. And it's, yes. um, but in those I, days, yes, yeah. the, the washerwomen, of course, would have been a, bit, a big attraction for, for Joyce. And, uh, um, he, he also enjoyed walking towards the, 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 the church in Saint-Gérand and Saint-Julien. Yeah, he name? would sometimes sit at the back of the church. Um, that's been said as well. And um, he would also, he walked an awful lot, I think, because he, uh, I don't know how he did it. Yeah. I know sometimes people accompanied him um, because he was, um, he was really, his eyesight was very, very bad when he was in uh, Saint-Germain. Mm -hmm, But then mm -hmm. again, I don't know how he wrote his letters either. And, and I can actually read them, read his handwriting. So um, he, uh, but, but he would, uh, 
he would walk to the chateau as well where um Maria okay. Jolas was and that's a couple of kilometers out of um, Saint Giron mm -hmm. and uh, he and, would and just how sit did, and um, listen to what was going on yes Guyant, yes, yes. And how did Nora then kind of, um, uh, how did Nora kind of like got adjusted to this new life in, in the countryside? Is that something that she was um, pleased with? She was, um, I think she got on very well with the, with, with the local people. Yeah, they liked her a lot. And then later, of course, um, you had all the um, refugees who, who came in and um, Um, I mean, there were good and bad sides to that, of course, but it meant that there was a lot of uh, a lot going on, and there were different nationalities. And um, I know she had some friends that uh, she would have tea with, and she was known for her for for her splendid tea and cakes. And yes. <laughs> uh, I believe there's even a story that she had tea, special tea that was um, sent from Paris or something, and. Uh, Um, yes. So, and, um, and, and I suppose I Nora was keeping in. a very kind of um, Nora was keeping as well a, a, a correspondence with her mother in Goa, so she was keeping a close connection with what was going on in, in Goa and, and and her family there as well. So there was a lot of correspondence. Yeah, speaking as well. of that, in fact, um, I have uh, I can um, cite uh, uh, one or two things from letters that uh, that Joyce wrote. Um, Concerning Galway, he, he wrote one, for example, on the 22nd of March to Harriet Shaw Weaver. We didn't mm -hmm. actually say much about her, but she was a very important person mm -hmm. um, for Joyce. And um, so she was in England and she uh, she was uh, um, um, she she ran the ego egoist uh, press of the it was a feminist um, magazine in fact at that time and uh, uh, she also published installments of um, portrait of the artist um, and even of Ulysses as well I believe so uh, but uh, her main um, importance for Joyce was that she Throughout her life, she supported him financially. Um, she'd had uh, quite rich parents, and uh, so she was. Um, and uh, she probably gave a total of what today would be about one million pounds um, wow. to to Joyce. Uh, and she was also the literary executor at the end as well um, when he died. But um, yes. so he wrote, he wrote to her um, from Saint-Jérôme and he said, um, so dear Miss Weaver, my son reports that no copy of Gorman's biography of me is to be found in Paris bookshops. The publisher did not send me a copy and the one I possess I bought from Brentano's Paris six weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Seemingly no other copy has come since. As I very much wish to send a copy to my mother-in-law, can you find out whether a copy is to be had in London and send it on to her if you find it? The address is Mrs. Barnacle for Bowling Green, Galway, Ireland. It will give her great pleasure to have it. It goes on about other things. Um, but um, so he was thinking of her later again. Um, he would... Uh, 
center another one. I'll read that later when we come to that part. Yeah, the center. Yes, yes. So some of the other kind of routines that they have as well, uh, well, in Saint-Geran, where uh, every Sunday they would go to to Maya Jolas and then listening to to the radio and see what what was going on, I suppose. And and then there was a bit bit of a part of that routine as well, just to to uh, maybe have the, the cup of tea and the cakes and listening to um, to the radio. So that was something that was very important as well to um, to, uh, to, yeah. to just trying to make, uh, trying to see what to make of what was going on with us, um, with, with that war. And they even, even mentioned himself, like as uh, he was even um, a bit of foresight from his side saying uh, that he, he called it even a funny war, even funny war expression became, uh, became popular. Um, so you mm. had a very, good understanding of what was going on and and trying to understand how the, the French people could actually be going through this kind of times um, yeah. at the time. Yeah. yeah, I think he has a dispute with, with Samuel Beckett about what the point of the war is. I mean, Samuel Beckett's travelled in Germany and I think has an idea that, um, you know, he, he's seen the, the, the growth of Nazism and, and so on. Joyce, I think, thinks of it in a sense like the First World War, that there was a pointless war that didn't do anything useful. Um, so they have a certain amount of disagreements about what the, the feeling of the war is. Um, and I think that has an effect on things. I mean, of course, in some ways, Joyce had already predicted the fact that the world would go to war in Finnegan's Wake and is quite thoughtful about how Finnegan's Wake is kind of um, actually kind of prophetic because Finnegan's Wake is all about conflict and and dramatic things like that. So the idea that um, especially um, uh, Helsinki and and Finland are kind of fighting the Russians Mm. um, is is sort of noted in his letters. He says, well, the Finn wakes again. I predicted it. Finn again wakes, yes, yes. (laughs) Finn again wakes. Yeah. Um, So he's he's rather pleased at being so prophetic. Mm. Um, yes, but yes. on the other hand, I think yes. is is finding things difficult that um, you know that there should be uh, um, th- that there should be such privations that he should have to move again so many times, um, and it's a great limitation on what he can manage. So he's, I think he's he's got a sense of humor about it though. I mean, he's he's aware that that's a, a kind of silly pun to make, and is it doesn't want to minimize suffering, and soon, pretty soon, is actually going to have a lot of trouble himself in in dealing with the war. I think, but. Um, mm. Yes, and and he moved quite a bit. Like he was very bit unsettled. I mean, um, like as you mentioned, Marion. I mean, he, he first um, stayed in the Hotel de la Paix, and then he moved into about six different places during that year, which is quite of a. It's the story of his life. It, though, yes, it? moving all the time. It's this nomadic existence. Yeah. It's it's really mad that even in Saint Jean Le Puy, that 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 nomadic, restless uh, yeah. life continues. In fact, his, um, another part of his routine was um, that Stephen would come and stay with them um, uh, at the weekend. On um, I, I think they probably had school on Saturdays, for example, but he would definitely come and stay with them. In the Hotel de la Paix, they had two rooms, two, two, they had two separate rooms, and, and Stephen would sleep with Nora in, in her room. And... Um, um, so I don't know. I know Maria Jonas sometimes came and, and had uh, lunch or supper with them as well. And uh, he listened to the radio an awful lot um, 
I um, presume there was a radio somewhere in the village as well because he um, he actually listened a lot to RTE uh, and um, he, he definitely knew what was going on even before it all started yeah, because he listened to, um, he heard Churchill speaking. And, uh, um, I mean, while people were saying, yeah, it's it's going to be over soon. I think he knew yes. that, that wasn't the case. He, and, obvious, and even had uh, that when you write a book like Finnegan's Wake, yes, he knew everything. He quite, <laughs> yeah, he was quite um, perplexed about the war, and he was a bit perplexed about about. Uh, he had that say thing like, uh, "What were people as intelligent as the French, capable of thinking about?" A war as this so uh to him to him like he was very perplexed about um about what was going on so it was being you know beyond uh, not just like beyond being afraid of what was going to happen but i mean very perplexed about how it all happened altogether and and how people were reacting to that so so in yeah. fact in in it wasn't until the, the month of may because for the children at school there of course, it was it was sheer bliss. Um, they were completely oblivious of, of the war and the the um, so so Stephen and all the people the the children at the school. It, it was a wonderful time because they they were in this chateau and it was a working farm and uh, um, they had horses and they would mm -hmm. have. Uh, sort of live uh, biology classes if, if a, a tree was <laughs> felled and things like that and uh, um, everything was hands-on and uh, they um, they had their own vegetables and um, I mean it was uh, compared to life in Paris of course life in, in um, those circumstances were wonderful for children and it wasn't until the month of May June that um, Maria Jolas really started to get worried that uh, parents were coming yes. to uh, um, collect their children or to, yeah, they, they had, I think, a bank, uh, sort of a holiday weekend and were telling her that um, the situation was very bad and uh, that uh, the war was going to last and it was um, the Germans were going to arrive in Saint-Giron and uh, yes. sooner or later. And, um, and so then... Uh, um, when they actually arrived in Paris, uh, that was on the, the 10th of May, they um, and at that time, uh, Joyce had moved to uh, Vichy because he, from, from Hotel de la Paix, he stayed for the two weeks of the Easter holidays, he stayed with uh, um, Marie Jolas uh, in, at the Chateau, and then he moved to Vichy because Vichy was just more cosmopolitan and uh, had And they enjoyed his stay. Yes, yes, and, yes. He, uh, he, he, there was yeah. a cinema, there was a cafe. Like it was it was actually more to, I suppose, his life, um, his yeah. lifestyle. I mean, um, more to his liking, I suppose. Yeah, he, he preferred yeah there was an opera, Vichy, there was a, an opera house, yes. a cinema, cinemas and bookstores. Uh, book so... Um, and actually, on the the sixteenth of June, because he stayed in Hotel de Beaujolais, and on the sixteenth of June, he was woken up very brutally on Bloomsday, yeah. um, and wasn't pleased at all um, because the hotel <laughs> was requisitioned, and so they um, they just they had to leave. Um, as soon as possible they they just barely had time to pack their bags and leave and uh, 
Samuel Beckett was actually staying at the hotel at that moment as well. And he had left, he had fled Paris um, to go down south. Um, he went on to Arcachon with his, um, his companion. And, uh, and Joyce came back to Saint-Jean-le-Puy. And uh, uh, then things started um, moving very quickly. The, uh, the government... Yeah, I, th uh, I think, isn't there an interesting moment where, where um, Joyce helps Beckett with a check? Because, I mean, Beckett's on, as you say, yeah. on the move in this interesting way. And um, uh, he's, he's got a check that no one will catch. So he's kind of left, yes. <laughs> left Paris with this check. Yeah. And Joyce calls on his friend Valerie Labo, um, his old friend, yeah. who by this time I think is pretty much paralyzed and can barely speak. But he says, if you can arrange to cash this check for Beckett, then yeah. something important, you know, we, you'll, you'll be doing great service to my friend. So that, that happens. And Beckett yes. is trying to escape the country with Suzanne um, uh, yeah. Dumanil. I mean, he's, he's, yeah. he's trying to leave, I think. And then, of course, gets stuck in Toulouse or somewhere and has to end up going to Paris mm -hmm. and, 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 well, uh, because his papers weren't in order, he he um, mm. he didn't have the proper um, yeah permits for traveling, and um, so he was really fleeing. And he he walked um, yeah because Valerie Labo was um, had a country home. He was living outside of mm -hmm. uh, Vichy that time, and he walked there. And he um, I know he jumped off a train as well with Suzanne at one point wow, because they couldn't wow. actually go to Toulouse uh, itself. So they, they jumped off somewhere before that. And uh, he was really fleeing. Yeah. And, yes, uh, yes. Um, and Labo was very generous and until the very end, of course, to, to did everything for, for Joyce. And, yes. uh, um, but Joyce, yeah, had to move back to the village and then um, yes. refugees started pouring in, including that same afternoon, uh, um, Paul Leon. His family had already arrived, but they had to split up on the way down from Paris. And uh, so Paul Leon was uh, uh, Joyce's, uh, well, not just his secretary, but he did all his um, administrative work. Um, he'd been doing that for at least uh, the last 10 years, but he was, mm -hmm. in fact, a very, very intimate friend of, of Joyce's. And uh, they're very, yeah, when you see their photographs, very, really very moving photographs very close, of the yes, two yes, of them. Yes, and they yes. would just sit sometimes for, for hours, not saying much at all to each other. But, uh, um, and I think he arrives at that point on a donkey. Is that right? He said he kind of yeah, arrives he, he <laughs> on a donkey, or, or a donkey. <laughs> donkey cart anyway. Exactly. And compares himself to, well, he compares yeah. himself to Christ arriving in Jerusalem. He said, well, if we exactly. for him, then it's good <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, But he was, he was also like Joyce, he was kind of tall. So you can kind of imagine this very strange, lanky figure, not yeah. on a donkey with, you know, at least on a donkey cart with his feet kind of hanging off. Um, you know, I think it was, it was, uh, no, it was, it was Paul Lyon who arrived on the donkey cart, um, Adrian. It, yeah, so and I think Paul Lyon was very short, yeah. So, uh, But when, when he <laughs> arrived, um, I'm sure it was a, a wonderful moment for, for Joyce to, to see him again and um, yes, yes. To, to reunite, um, yes, yes. Spend time with him. So they, he stayed for, for two months, yeah, June, July, even more than two months, yeah, till the end of August. And um, they started working on the um, corrections. 
We're coming to the end of part one of Gem Joyce last year in Saint-Jean-le-Puy in France. Please stay with us on part two, where we will be discussing Finnegan's wake, uh, the corrections, and Gem Joyce's efforts to move to Switzerland. <laughs>